So it's now my absolute pleasure to introduce you to a friend of mine, and this is Dr. Charlie Jewell, who I believe is with us. Uh, Charlie and I first met several years ago when I had the pleasure of having her in one of my medical student groups at the University of Southampton. Uh, we've remained in touch and uh, become friends over the years, and she's been very helpful doing some babysitting for my kids and so on and so forth. But basically, Charlie's here this morning to give her personal perspective on eating disorders. Charlie is a junior doctor and I'm going to let her tell you what she's come here to talk about. Charlie, are you there? I am. Thank you, Hello. Steph. Hello. Nice to see you. Um, so, as Steph said, um, my name's Charlie. I am an F2 in Portsmouth at the moment. Um, and I've kind of come today to speak about my experience of um, I guess living with an eating disorder or having gone through the process of an eating disorder. Um, so by all means put any questions to me that you would like. I've kind of got a few things I was going to sort of just talk through. Um, so I was going to tell you a little bit about myself and kind of my story. Um, kind of what purposes my eating disorder served for me and therefore what was challenging about trying to get out of it um, and then having a think about what it was that enabled me to get to where I am now. Um, so in terms of my childhood I had a pretty happy childhood. I grew up in a single parent household um, with a reasonably complicated relationship with my dad um, but I was a very high achieving kid, very determined. Um, not, I think I was quite sensitive, but not someone who talked about their emotions very much. Um, and I kind of just bumbled along. I was very, very active. I've always loved sport and dance. Um, I was a dancer, so I was very aware of my body. Um, I wouldn't say that I was particularly confident in my body, but I wasn't um, particularly unconfident either. I'd always been very tall and so I was very aware that I kind of stood out. I was five foot seven at the age of 11 so I was very kind of aware of that um, but I'd always had a very athletic body. I'd never been overweight um, and I'd say that I probably had a very normal relationship with food growing up um, and then when I was 16 um, my dad was involved in a freak accident um, and my life changed a lot in a very short period of time. Um, I probably for the first couple of months managed to cope as well as I could because I think I was probably still in shock. Um, and it was probably sort of three or four months afterwards that things actually started to become more difficult. I think there was an expectation that um, life would go back to normal for everyone else and I kind of hadn't reached that point yet so I think for me that's when things really started to become difficult. Um, I wasn't sleeping well, I wasn't eating well mostly because I didn't have an appetite because I just was quite I think dysregulated in every sense um, and so so yeah so I think 
it was a it was difficult to know where things changed from just being a kind of grief response into being something else but overall the process was actually quite quick so from the august time i was in normal weight and by december time um i was incredibly underweight and during that time um things sort of shifted slowly and my intake really tailed off um it wasn't really myself that recognized that there was a problem it was my friends at school um and it was my uh my tutor my school tutor who basically approached me and said that she was concerned about me um and that she felt that i needed to see my gp um and she very kindly gave me a bit of an ultimatum which was basically you've got 24 hours to talk to your mum I'm going to ring her in 24 hours time so if you don't take that opportunity she'll hear it from me tomorrow but I think you'd like the opportunity to talk to her first um which at the time felt incredibly uncomfortable but equally I don't think I was at the point where I would have done anything about it if I wasn't pushed um, so I had a very awkward conversation with my mum and my mum then booked me in to go and see my GP who I'd known most of my life and had a pretty good relationship with um, and my mum went and spoke to her briefly first and then I went and spoke to her on my own and it's safe to say I definitely downplayed the situation. Um, I was maybe just recognising that there was something wrong but I don't think I wanted to acknowledge that there was a problem because if I did, I had to do something about it and I wasn't quite ready for that. Um, and also I guess just that I was scared what would happen if I did say that there was a problem. Um, so my GP was very tactful. Um, she, I think, recognised that I was in quite a bad situation, both physically and mentally. Um, and she put in an emergency referral to CAMS because I was 16 at the time. Um, and that was in sort of mid-December time. Um, and at that point I was losing weight pretty rapidly and my intake was pretty minimal. Um, even with the emergency referral, with Christmas and stuff in the middle, um, it was a good sort of three weeks before I saw them, which I appreciate in the terms of mental health services is pretty, pretty quick. Um, and for me, it was really difficult because I still hadn't quite caught up with the process that was happening. Um, and when I went to see CAMS in January, um, on my first session there, I was given a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa. Um, and basically told that if I uh, lost more than about a kilo in the next week, I would be straight into inpatient, um, which given that that was the first time I'd really contemplated that diagnosis, that was quite a lot to process in the space of an hour's session. Um, so I did manage to stabilize things. Um, I slowly increased my intake and I uh, 
I think as Dr Cox was saying, sort of did the bare minimum. I just about got my intake up so that I didn't lose more than that kilo. And then I stuck to that line kind of to the point one of a kilo. And that's where we kind of bumbled along for about six months. Um, and I'm pleased that I was given the chance to prove myself in the outpatient setting because I think if I'd gone straight into an inpatient setting that would have been too much to process and I still benefited from having my family around me while I was trying to process everything with my dad but it did mean that I had six months of really letting my disordered behaviours become really quite established and problems that hadn't been problems up until that point came in so up until that point I hadn't calorie counted I simply had not eaten enough and suddenly I was given targets that I had to eat a minimum of X number of calories a day. So I would eat that number of calories to the to the one. And for me, up until that point, that hadn't been an issue. So it brought me a period of stabilisation, but it brought with it um, a different set of problems. Um, and kind of around June time we just realised that I wasn't making any progress. I was just about holding my own but that was it. Um, and for me CAMS was mostly focused around family therapy which in my house was difficult. My mum worked very long hours, she wasn't necessarily around to plate up my food and put it in front of me in the way that they wanted. Um, and so that model wasn't really that appropriate, but they were used to working with slightly younger people generally. So there was a decision that I would go into inpatient and I agreed to go in. Um, and I had been there for, uh, once the decision had been made, I had about a month to wait for a bed. And that was a really difficult month because during that month I deteriorated quite a bit because I think part of me gave up knowing that I was going in. Um, and so during that month, it was really just trying to keep me stable enough before I got the bed. Um, once I was in hospital, I was there for about 48 hours when I became really quite acutely unwell um, and was taken to uh, the local ED in the middle of the night with suspected refeeding syndrome um, and was in for sort of 48, 72 hours um, for a bit of stabilisation there before I came back. But actually, for me, that was a bit of a kick up the arse because it was the first time I'd felt unwell. Um, I couldn't keep any food down. And so during that time, I actually lost quite a lot more weight. And so when I left hospital to go back to the eating disorder unit, I was incredibly deconditioned and very weak and went back on kind of basically being allowed to go around in a wheelchair, which was completely odds with where I'd been two months before because even though I'd been a low weight I'd still been going to school I'd still been in my eyes functioning like a normal person um, and suddenly I felt ill and I felt weak and I didn't sort of recognize the body that I was in um, I also at that point felt like I lost trust in the process because I felt like I'd been bumbling along all right I'd come into hospital I'd done everything they'd asked I felt like I'd ended up in a worse situation and so I think at that point, my trust in the process kind of broke down and I was very keen to uh, discharge myself, but was kind of tactically put in the position of, you're not under section, but if you were 
to try and leave, we would section you. And so it was a very difficult position to be in because I felt like I didn't have a choice uh, because ultimately I probably didn't and that was probably what was needed, but it didn't foster a great relationship at the start of that admission. So that admission, um, I basically was the model patient in terms of I did everything that was asked of me. I ate everything that was put in front of me because I was just so desperate to get out. But I wasn't yet ready to acknowledge the psychological work I had to do in order to get myself better psychologically. So I ate everything that I was asked to eat. I did everything that they asked of me, but I didn't engage at all. And I wasn't ready to admit that any of the stuff with my dad had anything to do with where I was. So I left in the November of that year um, at a healthy weight, but probably psychologically uh, in a worse position than when I had gone in because I had not processed anything. I didn't really look in mirrors for however many months. I walked around in trackies and a hoodie, ignoring the changes to my body and ignoring um, kind of any awareness of what, what was going on. I simply ate to get out and I hadn't really processed anything beyond that because I just knew I didn't want to be in hospital. And then when I got out, I kind of found myself in a position of um, starting sick form supposedly with all my friends and in this position that was I was meant to feel so much better but I didn't um and over the next six months I relapsed reasonably rapidly um and the biggest thing that was an issue for me that time round was not only restrictive eating but also excessive exercise and I say excessive exercise but a better way of describing it is probably excessive movement more than just exercise alone. So I still had quite strict restrictions on me in terms of what I could do exercise wise that were placed on me by my treatment team. But I would walk everywhere. I would find long routes to get to where I was going. I would do anything I could to burn calories and I would avoid going to lessons so that I didn't need to sit down. I was completely governed by my illness and I had no quality of life whatsoever. Um, so things went downhill quite quickly. Um, I'd also learnt lots of ways of circumventing being weighed efficiently. So I was water loading, I was doing lots of things that um, meant that people weren't able to accurately keep an eye on me. Um, and so unsurprisingly, it kind of, it all fell apart not that long later and I went back in to hospital and my second admission into an inpatient unit was completely different to the first one. It was much longer and I wasn't the model patient in any way. I was a pain in the arse. Um, the first month I was there was really difficult and I was um still refusing to eat almost anything um, and so there was long discussions about where I should be placed if I should be moved up to London where they had um they could effectively restrain me and tube feed me or whether or not they could manage me where I currently was and that was incredibly difficult not just for me but for my mum um and so we 
it got off to a really bad start again, but actually I'm not sure what changed, but something changed. And I think it was the support of my team there that I had a different team that I got on really well with and um, things started to shift and I started to engage. And it was very different in the sense of I still wasn't necessarily completing all my meals and I still was struggling with my exercise, but I was being honest with people and I was engaging in my therapy and I was um, trying to do it differently to how I'd done it before. Um, and it was a long, it was a long admission. Um, I was there from the April through until December. Um, but it was, and I didn't leave at a completely healthy weight, but I left at a weight that I was at that point able to maintain. Um, it was kind of around the kind of 17.5 mark. So it was, I was physically okay. Um, and was able to kind of contemplate staying there and had a few months to stabilize before I left. But I think they recognized at that point, I wasn't quite ready to go further than that. But that admission was completely different. And it was the first real changing point. And I started to talk about um, stuff with my dad that was very much tied up in why I'd become unwell. Um, but it was a shame that as I left hospital, well, I turned 18 a couple of months before I left hospital. And so I transitioned from an inpatient CAMS unit to outpatient adult services. And so I went out to a team that I didn't know um, and also just a completely different way of working. So I'd gone from having very, very little responsibility and autonomy over my own care to suddenly having all the responsibility and all the autonomy. And that was a really difficult transition and particularly difficult for my mum who had always known everything about what was going on, which wasn't necessarily something I liked because I didn't necessarily want her to know everything, but she did know everything. And then suddenly no one had to tell her anything and she couldn't just ring up and find out everything that was going on. It all came through me. So for her, that was really difficult. And I did struggle when I came out because there wasn't quite um, such a strong safety net holding me. But actually, I think that was entirely what I needed because at some point I was going to have to learn to manage it myself. And it was just, it was a bit of a shock to the system. Um, so the first sort of six months having come out again was challenging. And where I'd gone back in, I was then a year behind at school. Um, which for someone who'd been really high achieving was also really difficult. So I'd gone back and restarted my A-levels. And we were kind of heading towards another relapse, not spectacularly, but things weren't great. Um, and it wasn't until I was starting to look at universities and everyone had sort of said to me that you won't be well enough to go to university at the moment. Um, and I had always wanted to do medicine, but that wasn't going to be a possibility. I didn't even know if going to uni was going to be a possibility, but was still starting to kind of go to open days and have a look around and see what the options would be. And no matter where I went, I ended up back at the medicine stand. I kind of would go and wander around everywhere else and then suddenly end up with a medicine brochure. And we did that at about four different universities. And I remember sitting down with my mum in Manchester. We'd just been on the open day and we were sat in the hotel room after the open day 
I turned to her and I was like, I really want to go and do medicine. And I was like, that's really nice, but it's just not going to happen, is it? Like, just where you are at the moment, it's just not possible. Like, I don't even want you to go to Manchester to do anything at the moment, let alone go and do medicine. And I, being my stubborn self, as soon as someone tells me I can't do something, well, I'm determined to do it. So I said, I want to go and do medicine. And mum went, well, great, let's go to Pizza Express. And I went, mm, no. Um, and she said, well, if you're serious about this, then you really need to start making changes and start being serious about them. So we went to Pizza Express and I cried my way through a pizza. Um, but that for me was a really big turning point because it was me finding something that I cared about more. And I am pretty sure if at that point I hadn't decided to go and do medicine, I would have gone back around the cycle again. And whether if eventually I would have found an out I don't know, but for me, that was something that was really, really important and really strong. And I knew that I couldn't, I was not going to get into medicine if I was still unwell. And even if I got through university, I was not going to be able to work consistently if I remained unwell. So for me, it was a massive turning point. And Again, I never do anything by halves. So once I kind of got that in my brain, I just kind of went for it. And I worked my arse off for the next 18 months. I literally wrote myself out a daily schedule of what I was going to eat, what I was going to do exercise-wise, and what I was going to do study-wise. And it literally became a tick box exercise of if it's on the list, it gets done, and there's no debate about it. And that was literally down to what I was going to eat every morning, what I was going to do in terms of past papers what classes I had and it became a very kind of functional exercise and that was the only way at that point I was able to process it so it um it got me to a point where I was healthy and it got me through my A-levels um and it was at that point enough recovery to get me where I needed to go on the face of it, yes, I still had disordered eating because I still had very strict rules around what I would eat, when I would eat, how much I would eat. But it was enough to keep me healthy and it was enough to enable me to live my life in the way I needed to then. Um, I got to uni. I got through the first year of uni and I sort of almost described it a bit like a honeymoon period, like I'd never expected to be trusted to live on my own and for the most part I did a pretty reasonable job of making good choices um yes there was a few wobbles of actually suddenly having the responsibility of buying my own food preparing it not no one keeping an eye on my exercise but for the most part I made very good choices um during my second year of uni I had to go off and have quite extensive surgery on my jaw um, which meant that I was on a liquid diet for about 10 weeks uh, with then soft food for the bit afterwards. And safe to say both me and my surgeon were quite nervous about how that was going to go. Um, it definitely rocked the boat, but I kind of got through it. But again, it meant I had to go a year back at uni. And there was something about that happening that was a bit deja vu and a bit unnerved me and was uncomfortable and I definitely came back to a rocky period after that um, and for the first time ever I 
sought help myself. And that again was a really big turning point for me. Um, I was sort of in my third year by that point and I went and saw my GP who I didn't really know because it was one that I'd kind of got with when I was at uni and then I kind of hopped around every year. Um, and I was just really honest with her and I sort of said that I had had previous treatment for anorexia and I um, had noticed that my thinking was becoming much more rigid again and my weight was slowly trending down. And I think I expected her to turn around and say, it's fine, because I think I probably had gone almost hoping that someone would reassure me that it was fine. But I think she very much said, actually, no, I think given your history, this could easily spiral further. So at that point, I was referred to April House um, and I did CBT there. And that was the first time I'd ever done CBT. And because I was just in a completely different place mentally, I engaged with it in a way that I would not have done if that had been offered to me earlier on. Um, and I was under their care for probably about eight months, eight months, eight, nine months. And actually, although it wasn't a massively long time, that was enough to kind of turn things around and get me back on kind of a slow upwards trajectory. Um, and it also happened to be around that point that life in general was kind of um, getting more settled. So I met my other half and um, I was getting kind of involved in a lot of extracurricular stuff at uni. And I felt like for the first time I kind of had a bit of an identity for myself that wasn't, um, I guess, the anorexic one, which by the time I finished school, if you'd asked someone in my year group who didn't know me, that's that was who I was. Um, and so as I kind of came out of CBT for the second time with a bit more of a kind of stable situation with my other half, I actually felt like I had a little bit of an identity and started to move away from that. And that was probably about five years ago, six years ago. Um, and since then, things are pretty settled. And I think it's difficult. Everyone always asks me, do you think you're recovered? Do you think you ever fully recover? How do you know if you're fully recovered? And I'm not sure is the short answer. I think recovery looks very different for every individual. What is an acceptable level of recovery for one person is very different to an acceptable level of recovery for another. And I think if you'd asked me when I came to uni if I was recovered, I would have said yes, because I was so far from where I had been and I'd got to a point where I was managing my eating to a point where I was able to live my life and I was healthy. And so, yes, I was in my mind at that point recovered. The thoughts around my body and my reason for restricting my intake were significantly reduced. Um, and so I had recovered from where I was. If I, if you ask me now, if I could stay at that level that I was then, no, I couldn't, because my life now, being a junior doctor, would not allow me to 
eat at rigid times and it would not allow me to always eat the same thing at the same times and that level of recovery would not be robust enough for where it needs to be now so I think it's a continually shifting thing and I think I do think that you can completely recover but I think it's also naive to think that it will not always be my Achilles heel so I think everyone has their weaknesses if you want to call it that there's that thing that can um kind of get them to fall off the track and it might be that when they get stressed they drink a bit too much or that they start engaging in risky behavior of one means or another and for me i know this is my achilles heel i know that when i get stressed my appetite generally reduces and that my thoughts around food and eating start to become more rigid. And I know that, and no matter how recovered I get, it would be silly of me to ignore that. And so, yes, I do think that you can fully recover, but I think you also still have to acknowledge your limitation. Um, and that's what I see it as, is that it will always be there to some extent or another, but it doesn't necessarily mean that in the here and now it's impacting my life. So that's a little bit of kind of <laughs> the, the journey. I guess the reasons for everyone that eating disorder serves a purpose, um, otherwise they wouldn't do it. It's not a fun process. Um, and so acknowledging the purpose that it serves for you is really important because if you can acknowledge that and understand it, you can start to unpick it. And I don't think there's, for anyone, I don't think there's ever just one reason. I think there's often a whole host of reasons. I think for me, there were a number of things. I think number one was probably control. So all the, everything that happened with my dad was completely unexpected and not something that I could influence in any way and a huge amount of change happened in my life after that and again none of it was anything I could influence I was effectively a bystander and that felt really horrible to just watch everything falling apart and not be able to do anything about it whereas my eating was something that I could directly impact and control and didn't rely on anyone else and wasn't effectively anyone else's business it was just my thing that when everything else felt completely out of control that I could like use as a crutch to make my world feel a little bit more stable um it also served as a very good kind of suppressor of emotions so there's definitely a point in starvation where you completely disconnect from your emotions and I almost used to describe it like living in a bit of a bubble so I was in my little bubble and there were all these kind of emotions outside of my bubble but none of them could come in so I never really cried when I was underweight I never felt happy I never really felt angry I never really felt anything other than a bit empty and obsessed with food and as horrible as that was where I had been a few months before that I had felt completely emotional all of the time um, and so actually 
it was a it was a in my mind it was no it was it was a good trade-off because I'd gone from being completely emotionally kind of overrun with thoughts and feelings that I didn't know how to process to something that was pretty horrible but actually everything was kind of at arm's reach and all I had to worry about was food and exercise and I could deal with that I didn't know how to deal with kind of grief and loss and all of that I didn't know how to kind of figure that out so for me being numb was preferable and it then comes on the flip side that as soon as you start to increase your weight and intake all those emotions come back and so the for me the automatic response was to go into kind of sort of protect myself and to restrict again and that's the process that I went through in that I had to learn that um, it was okay to feel stuff again and actually for me when I entered adult services they looked at adding in medication for me which had never been talked about as a child and I did go on to antidepressants at that point and for me I think that took the edge off coming out of that kind of numb state and since then I've been able to come off them but for me it was that switch from being numb into suddenly having thoughts and feelings, having to deal with them, that it kind of helped to almost take the edge off that. Um, and therefore the process of relapse and stuff from an outsider's perspective is very frustrating. But for me, it was also a learning process because I almost had to keep going across that threshold and going back to learn to deal with it and then go back to safety. And then I could go back and I could learn to deal with it a little bit more and then I could go back to safety again. Um, and so each relapse wasn't just a thing of we weren't getting anywhere. It was we'd got somewhere, but it got a bit scary and I was going to go back again. And from every time I went through that circuit, I learned something. Um, it was also a means of me expressing something that I couldn't put words to. So I'd always been quite a sensitive kid, but I'd never been someone who was good at talking about emotions because my whole family isn't, and that's just how we are. Um, so it was really difficult then when I had something as a 15, 16 year old that I just, I couldn't process. I didn't know how to process it. And I couldn't put words to how I felt, what I thought, talking about death and dying. And we're not very good at that in general in Britain. That's not something we do very well. and. So I, I didn't know how to put words to a lot of these things. All I knew is that I was very sad and very, I was hurting. And so actually in some ways, my kind of taking it out of my body was my means of kind of expressing what I felt um, that I didn't know how to put words to. And everyone sort of said, was it for attention? And no, it wasn't because I didn't necessarily want the help and input, but it was still a means of um I guess expressing myself um it also was quite effective at um closing off the future so when I was very unwell there wasn't the prospect of looking to next week next year next whatever it was literally focusing on the here and now and how am I going to get to next Monday or next week I wasn't looking at university I wasn't looking at life I wasn't looking at getting married I wasn't looking at having kids and actually at that point I couldn't cope with any of that stuff because that involved uncertainty and emotions and all the things that come with that and so for me it was quite an effective way of almost closing my life down to literally focus on getting from day to day and so again 
as I got better and life opened up again, as great as that was, it was like having to learn to deal with that because I'd gone from focusing on day to day and I'd kind of forgotten that I did want to get married and have kids and go on and have a career and everything because that wasn't feasible or part of life at that point. Um, in terms of what it feels like, so I think I'm a reasonably logical person um, and so people sort of say to me like surely you knew what you were doing was dangerous and surely you knew that the thoughts and stuff that you had weren't real or that didn't make sense or whatever and there's a few ways I try and explain it to people so I sort of describe it a bit like the hard wiring's gone wrong so if someone said to you go into a shop and steal something off the shelf your brain and everything about you knows that that's something that's wrong you shouldn't do that that's what you've been like taught to believe that stealing is wrong and it doesn't matter how much someone sits next to you and goes oh it'll be fine just go and steal it it'll be absolutely fine you would still know it was wrong and even if someone talked you into doing it and you went and you nicked something off the shelf you'd come away and you'd feel really guilty that you'd done it you'd feel guilty and that would stay with you it would stay with you all day that's how I felt about eating. So it didn't matter how much someone sat next to me and said it will be fine. It will be okay, it won't hurt you, it won't do this, it won't do that. That's how it felt, like it felt scary. It felt like I was gonna feel awful once I'd done it and I knew I would and I knew that that feeling wouldn't go away. And so yes, someone could talk me into maybe having something to eat, but then I'd have to live with the thought of knowing what I'd done for the rest of the day. And the easier option was to not put myself in that position because if I didn't eat I didn't have to feel like that and I can't tell you what happens to make the hard wiring go wrong but that's how it felt and so it was just easier to avoid feeling anxious and feeling like I'd done something awful so I just like that's what I did and then suddenly you have to keep doing that but you don't get to do that every now and again you have to do it like six times a day um, and so you go, and that's what we had to do as an inpatient. We were eating six times a day, three meals, three snacks. So you're just constantly emotionally exhausted because you get yourself into such a state, you have to go and do it. And then afterwards you have to live with the fact that you've done it. And then suddenly it's meal time again. And that's what it was just like. And so it's learning over time that actually what you believe is bad about eating and how you're gonna feel isn't right. And like trying to get the hard wiring back to how it used to be but that's not a quick process. Um, and like I said, it was in my mind easier to avoid it than it was to tackle it. And when I was kind of at my worst, it was just all consuming. So like I 99% of my day, my thoughts were focused around food, eating, weight, calories, numbers, and there was very, very little space for anything else. And I'm not someone who ever lies to my friends or family, but when it came to food and eating, it's the only time I've ever lied to anyone. But I genuinely believed at that point that I was protecting them by not telling them that I'd exercised or missed a meal because I was, I didn't want them to worry. I didn't want them to, um, I guess try and make me do something different um and again the same around exercise like the thoughts were just really really overpowering um and the thought 
not doing it didn't feel like an option and at that point I needed someone else to help me make it an option and I wasn't able to do that on my own so for me inpatient facilitated the start facilitated the start of that changing of thinking because I just wasn't able to do it on my own um and I guess the kind of the, the final bit which I've only got a few more minutes um was just thinking about kind of finding recovery in that process of I think finding recovery has been really difficult and like I said I'm, no one quite knows what recovery looks like I think regardless of whether or not you've ever had issues with food or eating we live in a society currently that has very odd attitudes towards food and eating and there's a huge amount of things around clean eating and exercise and so I think it's very difficult for anyone to have a normal ex a normal relationship with food or exercise and I very much view everything as a spectrum and I think for me I've accepted that there will be days where my decision making isn't as good as maybe it should be but for me it's the trajectory so it's okay to have the odd day here and there and if I'm really busy or really stressed those days might be a bit more frequent but for me it's the overall trajectory that makes the big difference and I think as we've heard earlier like the recovery time from anorexia is not measured in days or weeks it is definitely measured in years and I've met quite a few people through treatment and it's definitely there's definitely a large spectrum of outcomes and there is sadly a very high mortality rate but there is also a lot of people who get to a point where they can live very functional lives or be fully recovered and I think the biggest thing is just accepting that people may well go around the circle a few times and that it may well take them a while to get to the point where they're ready and ultimately you cannot force recovery on anyone they have to kind of come to the kind of reach the point in their brain where they're ready to accept it and also that they have the motivation to do it and for me initially the motivation to put on weight was to get out of hospital but that wasn't really a motivation to change it was just to get out of the situation I was in I started to engage initially because I wanted to sort of get to university and get there but again it was it was something that was for me but it was still it was for an end goal rather than where I am now which is where I want to be well for me I don't want to be well for my job or anything I want to be just well because I'm fed up of it and I think those those steps come one at a time and you can't push them on anyone um but most people will eventually get there you just have to be patient enough with them um so yeah I think that's probably everything I'm aware I've just talked solidly for 40 minutes um thank you so much Charlie that's a incredible um account there and lots and lots that I've learned from knowing and talking to you about perhaps what to understand and what to expect and what to be patient with and to understand that this is a complicated multifactorial condition that takes time and expert management 
there's some lovely comments in the in the chat um just basically thanking you very much <laughs> and uh, thank you for me as well it's um it's now quarter to 11 which i think was time for our scheduled break does anybody have anything specific that they wanted to ask um we've just got lovely lovely remarks about your your amazing talk there um it doesn't look as though anyone has any specific questions for you but I can see that there's no doubt people are very, very grateful for your your account this morning. And I know that you are a very busy lady and uh, <laughs> I, I'm very grateful to you for giving up your time this morning. And um, I hope you have a good rest of the day. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you very much for coming. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, John. Take care. Right. Um, oh. Hey, so Julia. Goodness, goodness, that there's nothing more powerful than hearing a personal story to really embed the learning that we've had from Hannah and Adam. Charlie, can I just give you my heartfelt thanks as well? Um, I, I just felt like you spoke so clearly, and there are no questions because actually, as, as I was listening, you answered everything uh, that wanted to know. And um, I've got that feeling that if we were all in a room together, that actually you wouldn't have heard a pin drop. There are, there are sort of goosebumps on all of us hearing how you can speak so eloquently after what has clearly been and, and has ongoing challenges at times. Uh, and I'm delighted you've chosen medicine. You must be the most amazing doctor to understand how it feels. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and if you ever want to talk about general practice, we, we'd be very happy to talk to you about that. Um, but thank you so much, Charlie. 